Conan O'Brien once said, The beauty is that through disappointment you can gain clarity, and with clarity comes conviction and true originality. This is Say vs. Rent. Welcome to Save vs. Rant. I'm John. And I'm Jeremy. In today's episode, we are talking about games that missed the mark. Now, when we talk about this, we're not talking about the worst games we've ever played. That's an entirely different list. That's an entirely different rant. Each of those games could probably take up in an individual episode. This episode is about games that have lofty promises and just fail to deliver on them. Or they might have been thematically flawed in some way, or just a little bit clunky. But whatever the cause, the game did not deliver on its promise. It had so much potential and just fell short of actually delivering on that potential. So we have six games here. Each of them has a different little bit that we want to talk about. John, I'll let you go first. Okay, well, my first selection is the Dragon Age RPG. Want to start out by saying big fan of the Dragon Age games. I personally only played through the first one, but my wife absolutely loved the series and has played all three of them quite extensively, and I've uh, watched a lot of that, so... I've got a pretty strong appreciation for Ferelden and the cultural planning that went into the game, all the ideas of the world that was created, the world building experience. Dragon Age Inquisition was such a good, good game. So much fun. I put tons and tons of hours into it. Uh, your brother did. Our uh, music producer, Timmy Skittles, put in a ton, a ton of hours. We love this series. Dragon Age is a phenomenal game series. I am the least experienced in it. I can say that fundamentally it was a fantastic game with a lot going on for it. The Dragon Age RPG fails to deliver on those promises. Now, the first thing about the Dragon Age RPG is that it does do a fairly good job of capturing the land of Ferelden. It comes with some excellent material. It talks about the culture of the world of Dragon Age, and there's a lot of allusions to the geography, the various types of creatures and people who inhabit the world, things like the, the Fade, all of that sort of stuff is brought up in the material, and they do a, a really good job of giving you that material. The boxes are actually wonderful as well. I'm sitting here in your basement right now, and on your wall, you have framed two of the maps that come with this game. Yes, and they are phenomenal maps. They're very much in keeping with the ones that were presented in the video game. They're beautiful pieces. I I enjoy having them on my wall, actually. They're very nice. Having said that, the game really fails to deliver on the same sort of experience as the Dragon Age video game. And one of the things going into it was that we wanted an experience similar to the Dragon Age video game. We wanted these heroic warriors setting out on a quest to defeat the the Darkspawn and recapture portions of Ferelden for the good of all the people. That sort of a feel to it. And honestly, the game just really doesn't deliver on that the way that it should. One of the problems with the game is that it's built using the age system, the, the adventure game engine system. 
which is not really well suited to the setting. You see, in the adventure game engine system, basically anytime you're doing something cool, it's because the dice came up a certain way. The simplification of it is that you roll three dice. One of them has a has a special color to it to indicate that it's the fate die. When you roll the three dice, if you roll doubles, the number on the fate die determines what you can do. The thing is, that doesn't really give your character a lot of opportunity to do cool things consistently. That's a really cool alternative to the critical hit system in most role-playing games. Yes. It but, hits more uh, frequently. It hits more frequently than a critical hit system. Like, with some consistency, you can be doing cool things. But it's not Dragon Age. In Dragon Age, you had a pool of power that allowed you to use all of these abilities that you had. It was more of a resource management sort of thing. In the Dragon Age RPG, a lot of what you're doing is just luck. Like, you, did you roll the right number? Cool. You get to perform a spell stunt and have a skillful casting that reduces the mana cost of your spell. Or you get to take a defensive stance if you spend two of those stunt points that you got. That'll give you a plus two bonus to defense until the beginning of your next turn, etc., etc. And all in all, it just ends up being a function of this random die. You got a lucky roll, so you get to do something cool. That's not a Dragon Age feel. And when you're going into a game, you're expecting a certain feel feel to it. You're expecting to be going in and, you know, using your powers and and managing your abilities so that you have these powers to bring out. And that's something that would have been a lot cooler and would have been something that we'd really like to have seen in the game. In earlier episodes of Save vs. Rant, we also mentioned that your character just dies. Can just die. Probably the most egregious example of this is that when you cast a spell, it is possible for you to have a spell mishap. Say one in six times that you cast a powerful spell, you're going to fail and have a spell mishap. And then one in six times that you have that spell mishap, it's going to be the worst type of mishap that causes you to not only become lost in the fade, but have a chance of being, let's see, transformed into an abomination, which if you play the game means that, oh no, a demon takes you over and you're dead. This was this was a threat that was suggested in the Dragon Age RPG, but was used as a plot device, not something that could just happen to your character randomly. Now, I understand that the odds of this happening are actually pretty pretty astronomically low if you actually do the math it's not likely in fact it's possible that this game has been played by all the people who have played it and no one's ever had this actually happen but then the question is why include it in the game at all it's just an arbitrary death that happens because your character was doing the thing that your character does you know if you have a 0.001% chance of dying every time you cast your spell that doesn't contribute anything to the game that just adds one more way for your character to die suddenly horribly and arbitrarily just for doing what your character does now if you do want to play a game where you die suddenly horribly and arbitrarily and you're supposed to play dark heresy in that you can play a spellcaster who gets taken over by a demon and that's part of the fun you're supposed to die in a horrible bloody brutal mess all the time in that game but that's definitely different than dragon age yeah and another thing that's worth noting is that the material that came with it there is a scenario called blood in ferelden which is an introductory campaign that includes three scenarios the first one and obviously this is a spoiler but i don't really feel that i need to disclaim that too much. The the first one, you have several moral dilemmas that really aren't moral dilemmas so much as no-win scenarios. And yes, I understand that in Dragon Age, the video game, there were totally moral dilemmas that were actually no-win scenarios. It's definitely in keeping with the spirit of the game. Having said that, these ones are a bit more ham 
fisted than the ones in the game. It's not a question of whether to support the elves or the werewolves who are going to wipe out the other side or try to forge an uneasy peace with them. Yeah. Point is, one of them is that there's this snake monster that you need to obtain material from its cave. The thing is, the snake monster's droppings are used as food for these fairy creatures that you have to deal with. And when you kill the snake, the DM is supposed to reveal that you've now doomed these fairy creatures to extinction. And the rulebook actually suggests that if the players rail against the unfairness of this, that you're supposed to suggest to them that the rules would have allowed you to subdue the creature, but you chose to kill it. Ooh, such awful people. This is stupid. It's a snake monster. Give some sort of implication that if there was some sort of implication that the snake monster served a good purpose in the ecosystem, that would have been one thing, but it's just a, oh, you done up, hero. You know, that's that's just mean-spirited. Also, it's totally possible and actually would have happened if I hadn't specifically not run this part of the scenario the way it happened. When you cook a meal that's meant to attract the creatures you need to follow to the snake cave, a giant crab comes and attacks. And one of the stunts the giant crab can perform is just taking your food and running away, which I rolled on the first try. I didn't have it do it because that would have been dumb and unfun and stupid. And no, seriously, why is this in your scenario? It ends up feeling arbitrary, mean-spirited, and generally poorly thought out. It's, as I said, it's a ham-fisted attempt at evoking the same sort of moral dilemma that you find in the game with the no-win scenario. And honestly, it just ends up working out very poorly. So those are my complaints about the Dragon Age RPG and why... It misses the mark. Jeremy, what have you got for your first one? My first one is Marvel Heroic Roleplaying by Margaret Weiss Games. That actually sounds really cool. I love superhero games. I really do. But I've yet to find a RPG that really encapsulates what superhero games are supposed to be about. This one is meant to be more of a comic book game. It's not meant to be, oh, I'm playing with my superpowers. It's meant to be, you're playing a story in a comic book. The problem with that is everyone gets boiled down to different sets of dice that you roll in a pool and then have a weird resolution system that you have to go, okay, these ones add up to this amount. And then the size of this die, if it's a D4, it's weak. If it's a D10, it's strong. I'm not really explaining that well. Let me let me give a good example. If you're playing Spider-Man. Everyone knows Spider-Man. And you're working solo, you roll a d8. If you're working with one other person as a buddy uh, group, you roll a d10. If you're working in a team, you roll a d6. Then you have different distinctions. Friendly neighborhood hero, wisecracker, with great power comes great responsibility. You can you can use small little uh, bonuses from that. And then you can use your powers, which give you uh, enhanced reflexes, gives you a d10. So if the story requires you to have exceptional reflexes, you roll a d10. But if you're instead using your wall crawling abilities, that gives you a d6. And you use all this, you roll it all together, and then you go, okay... Let's see. I add these up, and that hits my target number. But that only leaves me with a d6 left over, and that's barely a good success. So let me reshuffle these dice around. Okay, that adds up to 12, and leaves me with a d10 left over. Wow, that's a great success. And then the DM goes, yep. Okay. And so it's using superheroes to try and do a weird narrative-style game with a very crunchy mechanical system. Also, the character creation in this game sucks. Is it just really involved, or...? No, it's just, okay, 
what does your character what's your character good at? Okay, assign a d6 to that, or are they really, really good? Assign a d8, maybe. And there's not a lot of advancement in it, either. Once your character's there, you don't unlock new powers unless it's thematic to the story. You just get them and have them. It's trying to be a storytelling game, but if I'm wanting to do a storytelling game, I'll play a storytelling game. I'll play World of Darkness. If I want to play a superhero game... I'm going to play something like Mutants and Masterminds. Mutants and Masterminds, that's a that's a really solid superhero game based on a fairly simple mechanic that gives a lot of narrative power so you you don't end up getting bogged down cuz it sounds like it sounds like the big problem with that game is that it bogs you down unnecessarily in what should be a narrative system because a narrative system needs to be fast, right? Oh yeah, also if you roll any ones, you can't add them into your final total for anything, and instead the DM gets points for it. It's, yeah, as I said, it's really, really a crunchy system meant for a storytelling game, and I don't really like it for for a superhero game. I don't like it for a comic book game. It just doesn't feel right. Well, second game on my list, and this is, I'm sure, going to drum up a little bit of controversy to say the least is Dungeons & Dragons 4th Edition. Now, I was a huge fan of 2nd Edition back in the day, and when 3rd Edition came out, I was absolutely floored by the amazing changes to the game and how it made it more versatile, it gave the players greater options, it turned into this absolute smorgasbord of options. And one of the things that that caused is a lot of friction between players and DMs as players would want to introduce all sorts of crazy things the game and everybody wanted to have abilities it was still kind of D spellcaster edition one of the things that D fourth edition was trying to break is that reliance on spellcasters for all the cool stuff giving cool stuff back to fighters and such the way they did this again is kind of ham-fisted it's this this notion of making everyone the same in D fourth edition with the release material and i'll go into that a little bit in just a second but With the release material, the player's handbook, the DM's guide, and the monster manual, you had very homogenous characters. Everybody got the same stuff at levels. What you actually did with that stuff was different, but for instance, every first level character got access to two out of four of their at-will options, two out of four of their encounter options, and one of their daily options. So you had these abilities, and that was really cool. It gave you something to do, but your at-will options would almost always include something that would just mean that you never did a basic attack ever again. It just never came up. Basic attacks were almost entirely limited to attacks of opportunity. Right. So essentially you were choosing what your basic attack was, was one of them. And then the other one you would tend to choose something a little more interesting so that you had a cool option that was more limited in its circumstances. Now, if you were a wizard, you were going to have something that had a ranged attack. If you were a if you were a fighter, you were probably going to be limited to a melee attack. And really when it came down to it, it wasn't so much about classes as it was about roles within the party, which sounds like a great concept, but it really broke down a lot of the ingrained expectations of RPGs. Well, World of Warcraft did it really well. Well, World of Warcraft is World of Warcraft. <laughs> Let's just make that clear, okay? We're not talking about World of Warcraft. We're talking about D&D. We're talking about a sit-down game. What ends up happening is you find yourself rationing out these abilities to yourself. We, a lot of our groups, and I know your group did this, my group did this, we made cards that had our abilities on them, and when you used them, you turned them face down if they were a, a one-use or if they were an at-will. Yeah, we put ours in 
card sleeves, the green ones for the at-will powers, the red ones for the encounter powers, and black ones for the daily powers. And then you would just turn over the ones that you used, and you wouldn't have them anymore. Well, that kind of made it feel like a card game, and then on top of that, the abilities were all encounter abilities or daily abilities. There was no two times per day abilities. So the abilities were very homogenous, which played into what they were trying to do very well, but ultimately a lot of the classes lost their unique feel in this. You didn't have characters who had different sets of options. Everybody still had one encounter power to use, one daily power to use, two at-will abilities, those sort of things. And they tried to they tried to make some changes to this when they released the Essential series, uh, which started with Heroes of the Fallen Lands, which reintroduced the cleric fighter rogue and wizard and one of the big things they did in that is they changed it so different classes got different things in a legitimate way you know for instance uh clerics might start out a war priest might start out with the healing word ability his domain features his channel divinity power a daily power but he didn't necessarily start with a encounter power that was on par with other encounter powers some things had more powers than others wizards tended to have more options which was more in keeping with how wizards worked before the heroic mage for instance starts with his apprentice mage powers his spellbook and cantrips magic missile which they all just got because it's magic missile their at will powers encounter powers daily powers all that they had a wider plethora of stuff because it was more in keeping with how wizards worked in previous editions all in all the big problem with fourth edition is it did not feel like D&D as it had been established up till that point I believe that we used the quote a lot it was a wonderful tactical board game with RPG elements added on to it but it wasn't D&D and that was where it fell short of the mark is that it lost a lot of things that made it feel like D&D for my second choice, uh, let me let me pull this little box out, John. Here's a board game that I don't think that you've ever played. I've had it on my shelf. I've played it once. It's Ace Detective, a noir detective card game. This game was designed by uh, Richard Linnaeus, who made Arkham Horror. We went on and on and on for 30 plus minutes about Arkham Horror. And how much we love Arkham Horror. This game kinda sucks. And it makes me sad because it it has this cool pulp noir feel to it. But once you get into the rules, it becomes kind of a, a storytelling game where you have to play cards in order to keep the story going. But then it doesn't actually have any way of driving the narrative. It's just keep going, keep going. The game's not over, so the story has to keep going. There's no rising action. There's no twists. There's no turns. That's not really a good noir game. And in the end, it's the, the end of the game is determined by placing these little tokens all over the suspects. And whoever got the most votes is the perpetrator and then whoever put the most of their tokens on that person wins the game it it's such a letdown of a mechanic to end the game so ultimately you're just trying to make sure that your guy is the bad guy you're trying to make sure that your guy is the bad guy that you're telling the story in such a way that he ends up being the bad guy and you're playing these cards to keep things rolling but it all just falls apart. I mean, it has some wonderful elements to it that just feel like they were first drafts. All of that together made for a very, very long, boring play session. When we play a narrative 
board game, we're expecting maybe an hour. And we expect the game to give us an inciting incident, some rising action, some conflict, some twists, some turns, the climax, a denouement. Denouement? I I don't know. Denouement. We're expecting all these story elements that this game does not deliver. And I picked this one because I I did want to point out that uh, Richard Linnaeus, not everything that a designer touches turns to gold. Oh yeah, I mean, when you're doing so much, eventually you're going to have something that misses the mark. It's just the nature of it. But as disappointing because it sounds like an interesting concept, to say the least. It's just, if it lacks rising action and all that, you, you can't really, you know, expect it to turn out all that great. It's just not going to meet the expectations of a narrative game at that point. Now, there is a narrative game that I do like. It's called I, Dark Overlord. In it, all of the players are playing as goblin servants of the Dark Overlord, trying to explain why the last mission failed. That sounds really cool. So, they're trying to explain why the mission failed and why the Dark Overlord should not have them terribly devoured for it. And why he should not punish you specifically over the others. And you get to play cards to try and fumble their part of the story. Well, actually, this happened here. And the Dark Overlord stares more intently. And stares more intently. And so the card game aspect actually works with the narrative aspect of the game. Right, so game mechanics in it celebrate the concept. Rather than lofty concept being lost under clunky elements, which is what it sounds like Eight's Detective is. And that's, again, that's a shame because he is a fantastic designer, as proven by Arkham Horror. Speaking of Arkham Horror, my third selection is the game Mansions of Madness, which is a board game set in the world of Arkham Horror. Mansions of Madness is a 1v mini game where one player takes the role of the mansion and controls all the minions, bad guys, makes decisions about that, and the players take the roles of investigators trying to solve the mysteries of that mansion. The game is a scenario-based game where at the beginning of the game you set up the scenario, you as the storyteller player make choices about that scenario, set out everything, and get the ball rolling, and then you make decisions for the bad guys. Now, the disappointing things about Mansions of Madness primarily had to do with the actual execution of this. The idea is sound, the game seems really cool, but in execution, first of all, the setup is rather involved and not especially fun. It's basically you reading through this rule book for the specific scenario in question, getting everything prepared, putting things in the right spots, and then hoping that you didn't make any mistakes, which are relatively easy to make because of how complicated the setup actually is. The first time that we played it, we were sitting around for about 30 minutes, all talking about, oh, this was a great game of Arkham Horror we played, this was a great game of Arkham Horror, while you set up the game, trying to figure out exactly how to lay out this scenario. Right, setup was about a third of the game time, was just setting it up, which wasn't exciting, wasn't really interesting, and generally just felt kind of like a chore. Then the actual game took place, and it was it was okay. It just didn't have a lot of the great elements that Arkham Horror had. It, it doesn't have things where every action you take has like a scenario element to it. It did have a really cool concept of these puzzles that came with the game that 
the players had to solve that had specific rules for how they were solved. And they do a pretty good job of that, but they don't come up very often. They are incredibly random. In some cases, you can solve them in a single move. In other cases, it could be three or four turns before you have the ability to solve them. I liked them to a really great extent. There was the ones where we had to try and pick open a lock. Of course, then you could just bash them open with an axe, but what's the fun in that? There's the one where you have to uh, place the seagulls in the proper order, things like that. And they're all cool concepts, but they have two weaknesses. Uh, First is, again, that they're very random. And the second is that one player is always going to be much better at solving these puzzles than the other player. And it creates kind of a challenging scenario where you don't want the player who knows how to do it to interrupt the player who doesn't know how to do it, who's actually doing it. And that just creates kind of an unpleasant sort of conflict. On top of that, like I said, the setup is difficult. It's easy to make a mistake. Easy enough that the rules have a a section specifically for addressing that. Easy enough that in the first three times we did it, one of those three times the game was set up wrong so that it was unwinnable. Also, we've looked at it and it really feels like the game could have been set up in such a way that it was a completely cooperative game. Everyone versus the game. Really shouldn't be that difficult. And because it was an Arkham Horror game, that's what we assumed that it was going to be. Then we opened it up, started reading through and going, oh, there's a DM. Yeah, it was a little disappointing. Um, We were hoping for another completely co-op experience like Arkham Horror and games of that vein, but it just ends up being this 1v-many game that doesn't have a lot of in-game options for the player playing the one after the initial setup. Most of your choices are made during setup. After that, a lot of what you do is pretty much prescribed to you. A game I do like that's 1v-many is Star Wars Imperial Assault. It's a small tactical skirmish game, and it's 1v-many. One person's playing the forces of the Empire, and everyone else is playing an individual character in this small squad. And the game, while it does have a lot of setup, it's broken into chunks as the story and gameplay unfolds. It's also meant as a scenario-type game where you play it over a series of sessions and games. My final choice here, and I, I feel kind of bad, it feels like we're bashing on Green Ronin here a bit, which which we're not. I mean, we, we like Green Ronin publishing. Now, Green Ronin brought us Mutants and Masterminds, which we already mentioned is probably the single best superhero RPG on the market. But the, the game that I have to talk about is A Song of Ice and Fire role-playing. I like Game of Thrones. I really like Game of Thrones. I like sitting there and trying to guess where it's going, even when it is exactly how it is in the books and everyone's going, oh, he's going to get his eyes poked out. Don't tell me that. Why would you tell me that? Anyway, so I picked this up going, oh my goodness, there's going to be a lot of intrigue. It's going to be a fantasy intrigue game where there's all this fighting between the houses and it's going to go into the story of the world. Then I crack it open and I read through it and it has a really, really convoluted combat system where you have to be the exact number of paces away or else your weapon doesn't do quite as much damage. Plus there's a soak roll for uh, armor and character creation is very involved. And probably the coolest thing that this has, the house and lands creation, where you get to create your own house, get to be one of the noble houses in Westeros, or at least a minor house under one of the noble houses. All of that is just kind of pushed to the back. The, The book is designed to be a character creation book for most of it. And the coolest part, the intrigue part, is toward the back. The actual intrigue section of this book is 13 pages long. That's 
insane considering that combat is twice that uh, is twice that size it's 30 pages long just for combat and then there's the war section once again pretty good section there it's only 19 pages long so the setting where we have all this intrigue all this fighting all this backstabbing has roughly 40 pages devoted to that and roughly the same number of pages devoted to combat and so many pages devoted to character creation for a character that's probably going to get stabbed in the back or poisoned. It sounds like a game where, if it had been keeping true to the spirit of the setting, you'd be making multiple characters at character creation, having protégés, so that when your character is inevitably backstabbed, beheaded, poisoned, uh, killed as a random part of combat, because sometimes that shit just happens, all of those possibilities, whenever, when one of those po- possibilities inevitably happens, you'd have a backup character from the same house that you've already been kind of running that you would be able to slide into. And in the house creation, you get to create a number of NPCs. But the Lord of the House, you specifically cannot play. You can't play Lord Eddard Stark. You have to p- uh, play as one of his children. You have to play as the children or or the retainers of this house. You have to play the maester that lives on the lands. You can't actually play the Lord, which on one hand I get. Because otherwise it's just going to be, well, I want to play the Lord. Well, I want to play the Lord. Well, I want to play the Lord. And the Lord would have inordinate powers over all the other players and, you know, that just make for a weird discrepancy in power. Well, you make all of these characters at, at the beginning of the game and you're obviously aiming for which ones you want. And then there's no other NPCs at the end. If your character dies, um, I'm gonna play this character. I'm gonna play the Lord's Bastard. Did we say he had a bastard? He does now, I guess. It felt so close, so close to the Song of Ice and Fire type of game I wanted to play. I really, really, really wanted to like this. It has a great primer on Westeros. It has a really good section on house on house creation. As I said, I love that section. It's a really, really good section. The whole group sits around and creates the house together. But then it gets bogged down, once again, in a combat-heavy fantasy, a uh, high-fantasy game. It really feels like they had a role-playing game here, then they acquired the license for A Song of Ice and Fire and decided to paste that right over this system. That is the problem with the Dragon Age RPG, too. They had an RPG, and they just applied it to the license. And there's nothing wrong with the age system, it's just obviously not meant for that RPG. Similarly, I guess, the Song of Ice and Fire RPG really isn't well supported by the system underneath it. Is that what you're saying? That is exactly what I'm saying. It, it feels like they had a wonderful, wonderful game. And then they had to find a way to publish it. And they did it in the easiest way to make them money. So those are the six games that we really have a little bit of a beef with. They're the ones that we feel that really just missed the mark. So overall, I I think that we've offered a couple of good alternatives to these uh, type of games. I'm going to tell you right now, I've spent more money on bad games and finding out what I don't like than I have on almost any other type of game. I have a bookshelf at my place full of games that I do not play because I bought them and played them once. This is why I like friendly local gaming stores. You go in there, you can talk to the man behind the counter and go, hey, what is this? Is this any good? 
And they'll look at you and go, oh yeah, that, that's a really good one. Or, oh yeah, the Song of Ice and Fire role-playing game? Not not really for you. It's not what you're looking for. It's also why I really like BoardGameGeek.com. If you go on there, they have in-depth reviews of all these games. It's a very good way of finding out what type of game you're getting into before you buy it. And substantial discussion of them, too. So you know that if you have questions or if you're confused about rules, you can find a consensus even if the publisher might not have a frequently asked questions or a rattle list that would explain the answer to the question. Next time, huh, John, next episode's our 10th episode. 10 episodes! So I think that we'll do a nice little diversion from our usual ranty topics, and we'll instead put on our professor jackets and go into DMing 101, the tips and tricks of the trade. Once again, thank you for listening. I'm Jeremy. I'm John. Thank you very, very much. Disappointment to a noble soul is what cold water is to burning metal. It strengthens, tempers, intensifies, but never destroys it. Eliza Tabor Stevenson Save vs. Rant is a Tabletop Gamers Guild production. Your hosts are John and Jeremy, with music by Timmy Skittles. Save vs. Rant is recorded on dueling laptops in front of a silent and invisible studio audience. Visit us at SaveVsRant.com or contact us on Facebook or Twitter at Save vs. Rant. We'd love to hear from you.